What's going on guys? This is Khalil Jones, short for KJ. And this is why theology, of course, theology matters because it's through our theology or through our understanding of who God is, we grow into a deeper love for who God is. That's the whole purpose of theology, right? Not to be puffed up with knowledge, but to grow in a deeper understanding of who God is and love him more based on what we learn in the scriptures. Because God has revealed himself to us in his word. And so we want to know who this God is. And so if you've been keeping tabs with the podcast so far, um, we've covered different various topics. But I start off the podcast with a particular episode titled, What is Reformed Theology? And in that episode, it was kind of short, fairly, about 15, 17 minutes, I believe. And so in that episode, I talked about what it means to be reformed. Today, there seems to be a common misconception that to be a Calvinist or to be called a Calvinist makes you reform. But that could not be possibly um, far from the truth, because we know, again, as I covered in the episode, traditionally, all the reformers, they all held to what is known as the three C's and the five S's. Those three C's, again, were Calvinism or what is known as the doctrines of grace, TULIP. And we've covered that in episode one on what is reformed theology, the first C. The second C, we talked about that today, what is known as covenant theology. The third C was confessional. And the five S's are the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And so we are definitely anti-Catholic and against that system. And so to be reformed, you must affirm to all of these things. Of course, you have the creeds as well. I think I might mention that. Um, we'll talk about those in the next episode about what it means to hold to a confession. And setting our churches to be built on the confession. Of course, the word... We built our churches on the word, but your church should definitely affirm one of the confessions. Definitely good. And so um, today we're going to be dealing with part two of our episode of our series. It's a four part series on what is Reformed theology. Again, episode one, we covered the first C, which is Tulip Calvinism. Today we're going to be talking about covenant theology. And so a good place to start will probably be understanding what it is covenant theology is right because covenant theology is not a theology but before i get there let us take a quick break and we come back we're going to be diving into this today so before i um, get us started about what is covenant theology i need you guys to understand a term that we use in theology what is known as biblical theology now, biblical theology, it is the study of the doctrines of the Bible. And so it's different from systematic theology. As you know, systematic theology is um, it's kind of built upon categories or doctrines according to like specific topics. And Bible, biblical theology, it shows the un, basically like the entire Bible and how it progresses through history. And so um, biblical theology can also be, let me try and see. It can be also arranged according to like the chronology of like historical things inside the Bible. So like from beginning to end, it's how you view the entire Bible versus like, again, contrasting that with systematic theology. It's not like a group of like just specific different theologies and systems and how to view the Bible. But instead, it's like the entire landscape of the Bible. And so there are um, normally there is three different interpretations of how you view the Bible. And we're going to dive in that today. So you usually have, number one, you have covenant theology. And to me, it's the most simplest biblical explanation of, you know, how we should be looking at biblical theology. And then number two, you have what is known as dispensationalism. And that has kind of swept a large majority of the Christian world today. And it's very popularized and modernized today. As you guys know, people such as John MacArthur hold to that. And it was, you know, started with John Darby and Schofield, all these different names. You guys know that whole system is definitely modernized today. Even things such as the Preacher of Rapture and the Nothing Left Behind series, all that stuff falls into dispensationalism. The third view is also, you know, kind of popular today, I guess you would say, is what is known as New Covenant Theology. So you have Covenant Theology, New Covenant Theology, and then you have dispensationalism. So the question is, what is covenant theology, right? Because all the reformers, they 
affirm covenant theology. So essentially you can describe or define covenant theology as interpreting scripture through the lenses of the covenant. So covenant theology, it is not so much, I guess you would say, I know the name is covenant theology, but covenant theology is not a theology. It's not the study of God, but in a sense, it's a systematic set of doctrine that we use or a framework to help us interpret scripture. And again, it's usually um, contrasted with dispensationalism and new covenant theology. And so dispensationalism, like I told you guys what biblical theology is, dispensationalism, it teaches that the scripture is unfolding in a series of seven dispensations or God is dealing with mankind in seven different dispensations. And so dispensation can be defined as the particular means God uses to deal with man and creation during a given period in redemptive history. And so they would say that there are seven different dispensations that God deals with mankind. And so new covenant theology, it's almost like a gap between covenant theology and dispensation. And then you have new covenant theology in the middle of that. And so it's kind of, um, it kind of new covenant theology, it kind of borrows from both of the covenant theology and dispensationalism, but it's definitely different. So for starters, in the classic interpretation of covenant theology that I refer to, Jesus, we are taught that he came to fulfill the law. You guys know Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Christ said, I, I did not come to, you know, get rid of the law, but he said, I came to fulfill the law. And so he did this by satisfying all the ceremonial laws, the civil laws, and the moral aspect of the law. So Jesus Christ he is the reality behind the shadows of the old test of the old testament, like the whole sacrificial system. Christ was the fulfillment of all of that. That's why he says, I did not come to get rid of the law, but I'm the fulfillment of the law. Because he's the Messiah, right? So Jesus Christ, he also like bore the penalty of all our sins that was deserved. Basically, um, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but Christ, he fulfilled all the law. That's what I meant to say. And so Jesus Christ. He lived in full accordance with the moral aspect of the law. And he fulfilled every single aspect of the entire law that like nobody could keep in the Old Testament. And so when we say the moral law, I taught my last episode that the moral law or the Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. And so Christ, he fulfilled all of the Ten Commandments. And so when we say that Christ done away with the law, he did away with the, the civil law and the ceremonial law. But classic covenant theology says that the moral law has not been done away with, but it's been fulfilled because the moral law, it stands as a standard of morality for mankind because it reflects God's character. And so it does not change. Therefore, like when we speak of like, um, I affirm this as well. So like covenant theology, it sees that the Mosianic law, it basically the Ten Commandments, Decalogue, the moral law, that is still binding today on Christians and it, people who are not uh, believers, they still honor the guilt of the moral law. Because again, the moral law, it reflects God's character. So all those laws, it points to God. That's why it has not been done away with. But in contrast, New Covenant Theology says that basically it sees that the Ten Commandments as a whole has been fulfilled in Christ. Christ not only did done away with the civil law and the ceremonial law, but Christ has taken care of the uh, moral law as well. So all of the Old Testament law has been fulfilled in Christ, even the Ten Commandments. And so New Covenant theologians, they, they would say that we're no longer under law, but now we're under the law of Christ. And so anything that Christ teaches that we should do, that is the law of Christ in comparison we no longer keep the Old Testament law, but now we keep the, the law of Christ. And so things such as the Beatitudes, that is what they, they would say we should be affirming to. Anything that Christ teaches in the Testament, we are under the law of Christ. So to me, again, covenant theology is the most simplest view of biblical theology because it just makes the most sense. And it's definitely very biblical. As I break this down, I'm pretty sure you'd be like, well, I've always known that. 
Exactly, because covenant theology is biblical. So for starters, let me define what a covenant is, in fact, because I know many people have no idea what in the world is KJ talking about. Because again, covenant theology is not a theology. Again, it's basically just us interpreting scripture through the lenses of a covenant. And so for starters, so for starters, what is a covenant? A covenant can be defined as an agreement or a promise between two or more parties, usually to like perform different actions. And so again, a covenant can be defined as an agreement or a promise between two or more parties. And so if you guys don't know, you guys, the word, so basically you have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. Well, in Latin, the word testament is what is known as a covenant. So we would speak as we have a, the old covenant and we have the new covenant. And so to be more specific, the old testament or the old covenant is a viewed as a covenant of works. If we get down to the nitty gritty and details of what the old covenant is, it is a old, it's basically a covenant of works. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. And then the New Testament or the New Covenant is built upon grace. Therefore, it is what is known as the Covenant of Grace. But there also is a third covenant in what is known as the Covenant of Redemption. And so basically, a covenant, again, is an agreement between one or more parties. Well, the Covenant of Works is between God and man. The Covenant of Grace is between God and His Son, Christ. And then the Covenant of Redemption it's with, with, with basically between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's God making an agreement with himself. And so we're going to talk about all of these covenants today. And hope you guys leave growing more closer to the Lord. Of course, I will be my heart's desire is that somebody will leave, believe in the covenant theology. But I know that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is knowing Jesus Christ. And so I love sharing the gospel using covenants because it just makes so much sense as you understand why the gospel is so special today because even today you can see people still have this covenant of work system ingrained in them that happened when adam fell we're going to talk about that today of course but like you can share the gospel using via covenants and how wonderful the new covenant is and how wonderful this grace is all by explaining covenant theology because it's so beautiful right and it's definitely biblical again Covenant theology is definitely biblical. And so let's start with the covenant of works. So you guys know God made all things. The world has not always been here. 6,000 years ago, the very first verse in your Bible, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The story, go the story then goes on to say that God, he made mankind, right? He made Adam and Eve. Not Adam and Steve, but Adam and Eve a woman, and a man. And the Bible says when God created man, he placed them in the Garden of Eden and gave them one simple command. You guys remember, right? You are, the, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so reformers, they would say that this language that is spoken here is a covenantal language, basically simplified in a command. And so God, he sets Adam in the garden and promises Adam eternal life. But let me back up a little bit and let me explain something real quick so you guys will know what I'm talking about. Because I don't want to get too ahead of myself. So we speak of what is known as the first Adam. The first person that God created, of course, was his name was Adam. But the Bible tells us there's a, there's a second Adam. His name is Jesus Christ. And so the first Adam... He was our head or our representative. And so let's go to Romans chapter 5 and look at this headship that Adam had over mankind. So Romans chapter 5 verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin enter into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin." So let me read again. Therefore, just as though one man's sin enter into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. 
Nevertheless, verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And so Adam is a type of him who was to come, that is Jesus Christ. And so Adam was our head. Verse 18, I believe, make sure. Let me start in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, For if by transgressions of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Verse 18, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so though one act of righteousness there, there resulted justification of all men. And so, what Paul is talking about, he's definitely, he's talking about something that is known as headship. And so, I always say, you guys remember from my first episode, I told you guys that Adam, he was our head. Just like in the United States, we have what is known as a president. If the president goes to a different country, he represents the United States as a whole because he's our head, he's our president. In the same way, imagine that, but imagine Adam being the president or the head of every single human being that's ever existed. He represented all of us all of mankind in the garden. And so what at what uh, Paul was teaching in Romans 5, he says when Adam sinned, the whole world went into damnation. Why? Because Adam was our head. He represented me, you, your family, your grandma, great grandma, everybody. Everybody was represented in the garden with Adam. And so let me go back. So again, when God created man, he placed him in the Garden of Eden. He gave him one command. You guys remember, do not eat from the tree because if you do, you will surely die. And this language, again, that is spoken is a language of covenantal language because it implies a command that Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will die. But if you don't, you would definitely live. And so if Adam was our head, that means that there was a chance that he could have provided eternal life for all of his prosperity or all of his descendants. But because he ate from this tree, death spread to all of us. So again, God sets Adam in the garden and promises eternal life if he would obey. And so he didn't. And that's why the world is in damnation right now. That's why the world is so damned and so wicked and totally depraved of everything because Adam fell. And that's why sin has crept into the world today. Because Adam sinned, and we speak of this in the theology known as original sin, not the first sin that Adam committed, but the consequences of that sin. Because Adam was our head, he brought death or sin into the world, and death is spread to all of his children because he could not fulfill this covenant of works. Now, I know somebody right now is saying, well, KJ, what are you talking about? Because the covenant of works, the covenant is not mentioned anywhere in Genesis. And you're definitely right. But again, the language is very similar. But let me guys, let me read you guys of what it says here in Hosea, I believe. Yes, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. It says, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have all dealt treacherously against me. Listen again. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. And so what covenant is God talking about here? The covenant that he's talking about is the covenant of works. So again, I know someone's saying the covenant is not used in the first chapters, but we don't need to see the word covenant to understand that we're dealing with a covenant. Am I making sense? So from Genesis all the way up to Malachi, that is known as the covenant of works. Even until Jesus died, we are not into the new covenant yet. Now, most reformers would teach that the covenant of grace has always been here. But I am reformed about this, and I affirm what is known as the 1689 London's by the Confession of Faith. And we do not agree with that. And I'll talk about that later. But the covenant of works, the same language is used in the garden. Adam, if you obey me, you'd be blessed. 
But if you disobey me, you will surely die and all of your prosperity, death will enter them. And so had Adam kept his commandment, the world would be perfect around us today. But because he failed and could not meet the requirements of God. So basically, think about this. God is holy and he demands perfect obedience. Anything apart from perfect obedience deserves eternal damnation in hell because God is perfect. He's holy. He's holy in essence. He's holy in his being. He's twice holy, as the Bible, as George Whitfield would say, twice holy, because the Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible says how God hates sin and all who commit it. He hates sin. He throws sinners in the hell. Therefore, he hates sinners as well. Not just the sin, but the sinner. And so if God is holy, for him to require of what mankind should do, it should be to mimic his holiness, to be perfect in his being. And so because of the works, that's basically the same language, basically to be perfect. If you obey me, you'll be blessed and you'll be rewarded. But if you disobey me, if you sin, that is to break my law, you shall surely be put to death. And you would not, basically, you basically receive curses on you. And so, just like the word covenant is not used in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the word trinity is not used in the New Testament. But we know the word trinity to be biblical because we know when I say trinity, you know what I'm talking about. God in one essence, one being, one God, but that God has chosen to reveal himself in three different persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. How does it make sense? We do not know. We probably never will know what the Bible teaches, right? And so we affirm this because God is a triune God. And so we can get it, but it's hard to grasp because God has chosen not to reveal that to us, but he is God, right? And so just like the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, covenant does not have to be mentioned in Genesis for us to understand that we're dealing with the same type of language. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed. So we also don't read um, an agreement between Adam and um, God here. You guys know, like I told you, that a covenant is usually an agreement between two parties. But when here, not only is the word covenant I mentioned, but there is no agreement here, right? And that's because God, he automatically requires that we obey him out of love for him because by him, all things are made and for him. And so even though God does not have to speak, in, in essence, to understand for his creatures and know that we should be perfectly before him, Adam when God gave us command, you shall obey me, basically only from this tree, it's still dealing with the same type of covenant of works aspect. To be more specific, even um, not only does this covenant of works apply to Adam, but all of his children, all of the Jews in the Bible also of this covenant. So listen to this, Deuteronomy chapter 28. And so this puts on the covenant of works in full display. Let's see. Deuteronomy chapter 28. It says, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations and the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. If, if, keep in mind, if you obey the Lord your God. One more time. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Verse 3, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Verse 4, blessed shall your offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. Verse 5, blessed shall your, be your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 6, blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Verse 7, the Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you. The Lord will command a blessing upon you and your barns and all that you put your hands to. He will bless in the land if you obey the Lord your God. But Moses then shifts this in verse 15. Listen to this. But it should come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Verse 16, curses shall you be in the city 
and cursed shall you be in the country. Verse 17, cursed shall you your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 18, cursed shall be your offspring of your body and the produce of the ground to increase of your herd and the younger your flock. And so everything that was said in verses four, three, four, five, six, and seven, all these blessings, it gets flipped on its head and turns into cursings. Why? Because the stipulations in the covenant works is perfect obedience. You are rewarded in the covenant works for your active obedience to the Lord. But if you disobey the Lord and his commandments, you are cursed. In the same way, the people of Israel were under the same covenant Adam was under because in the garden, Adam is under the same kind of stipulations. Adam, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. Adam, if you disobey me, curses, right? What was the curse? The curse was you should surely die. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death because that spiritual death, it transferred or was imputed to all of Adam's offspring, all of his children. Since the beginning of time, 6,000 years ago, all born into sin. Not because they, they, they were born and commit sin and become sinners, but rather because they're born into sin because of original sin, the consequences of sin. Adam imputed to us or transferred and gave us this sinful nature. And had he just obeyed God, he would have been rewarded in all his offsprings. But because he disobeyed God, curses have come into all of his children. And so in a garden, that was a promise of eternal life. Of course, the Bible does not explicitly say this in Genesis, but think about this. God told Adam, if you eat from this tree, you'll surely die. So if you flip that statement around, if you, that means if you don't eat from this tree, you should surely live, right? And Paul says in Romans 5, Adam was a type of him who was to come. That is Jesus, right? And Jesus, through his one act of obedience, he rewarded or imputed righteousness to all of his offsprings. In the same way, Adam imputed sinful, uh, the sinful nature to all of us. And so both Adam is ahead and Christ is ahead. And I'm talking about Christ being ahead in a little bit, but Adam... Had he obeyed God in a garden, there would have been no need for the second Adam to come. But because Adam disobeyed and could not fulfill the covenant of works, we now need a new covenant. But not only that, again, had Adam stood the test of time, this life he would have had, he would have attained eternal life for himself, but also for his children. Let's see, let's see. We guys also know, again, I mentioned kind of already, when God created man, he made man in a natural relationship between himself. You guys know how it says in the garden that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so in this relationship, some would say that it's a relationship between the potter and clay, between an absolute sovereign God and his creatures. But the distance is so far between the two because, again, God is holy and transcendent. And so God requires perfect obedience to himself because in his being, in his essence, he is holy. How can God have fellowship with the opposite of holiness, right? And so as a creature of God, man was naturally under this law, uh, under this covenant works, and by, is bound to keep it. Again, like, as I guys told you about, just like the people of Israel were bound to keep this law, that if they obey God, they would be blessed in the same way. Mankind by nature is bound to obey God and live perfectly in front of him. And so, in essence, the great promise of the covenant works was the promise of eternal life. And so there's kind of a lot of people who try to deny this, that basically that in the covenant works, life could have come. Or if Adam had kept kept the covenant works perfectly, then he could have rewarded his offspring's um, basically righteousness. And so because they basically say that because they don't see the word covenant or you guys, they basically don't see how in Deuteronomy 28, blessings and cursing, they don't say the word covenant. They don't see the word, like they, they don't see agreement between the parties. But again, as I've already explained, we don't need that to know that Adam was under his covenant. And again, Hosea 6, 7, it says, that Adam broke the covenant. And that covenant, again, is the covenant of works. The same covenant that the people of God were under, the Jewish people, the Israelites were under, Adam was under that same covenant. 
I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says the old covenant was founded on the principle of merit. It was serve God and thou shall be rewarded for it. And if thou walkest perfectly in the fear of the Lord, God will walk towards thee and all the blessings shall come upon thee. And thou shalt exceedingly be blessed in this world, in the world which is to come. But that covenant fell to the ground because although it was just the man should be rewarded for his good works, but also punished for his evil ones. Yet man being sure to sin, and since they can't, basically um, us were born into sin, and so it's impossible for us to keep that standard. That's what um, Charles Spurgeon is getting at. And so, mankind is still, think about this. You can walk up to somebody right now and ask them, um, hey man, if you die tonight, you stood before God, and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven tonight? What would you say? And nine times out of ten, you're going to get a covenant of works-based answer. They're going to say, because I prayed a prayer when I was younger, I've been baptized two times, I had a 4.0 high school and college, I take care of my family, I feed the poor, I, 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 right? They're trying, to be, they're trying to get to heaven based on their own merits. But what they don't know is, not only are they supposed to keep God's law, but if you fail at any point of God's law, you have become guilty. Listen to what James says in James chapter 2, verse 10. So God, God's law requires perfect obedience. Not only can Adam keep this, but you are born in a state that where by nature you are born hating God and born hating his law. So James chapter two. Oh Lord, y'all, I'm already in Hebrews. I gotta do better. James chapter two, verse ten. Whatever quick. Here we go. Yes, James chapter two, verse ten. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so in the same way for the person to say, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Therefore, I should be rewarded for my good behavior is the opposite of what God requires. Because God requires, because he's holy, he requires perfect obedience. Therefore, if you sin at one point of your entire life, you have transgressed this covenant of works. And you cannot keep it. Adam's commandment was, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey me, you'll be cursed. The same is said for you. If you keep my Ten Commandments, you'll be blessed. But the point, the problem is, you cannot keep it. Martin Luther says, he says, uh, trying to make sure I'm butcher this. A spiritual inability points to spiritual depravity. What he was talking about is, the law of God was used to show us our sin. And so in the covenant of works, the whole point of the law has always been to reflect God's character. For example, do not lie, do not steal, do not murder. All those things points to God's character because God in his essence, he is the law. That's why in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and dwelt, among, and dwelt with God. And then he came to dwell among his people. Of course, talking about Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is the word of God. And so God is the word. And so his word is always good, even his law, because the law points to God. And so Adam cannot fulfill this covenant of works. You cannot fulfill this covenant of works because you are a sinner. You are born into sin. Therefore, you always commit sin. It's not, Paul Washer said, it's not that you, just, it's not that you just commit sin. All you've, never, all you've ever known your entire life is sin. And that's the problem. David says in Psalm 51, verse 3, I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. The same is said in you. You have been sinning since you were born, and by nature, you are a damned. And so because of Adam, he has damned all of his people and prosperity, his children. Nobody can fulfill this covenant of works. And for the unbeliever today, they still fall and are guilty under this covenant of works. They have to actively, basically, perfectly obey all of God's commandments or they'll be cursed. And what is a curse? The curse is 
If you're not perfect, you will be damned and go to hell. If you are perfect, you'll be rewarded for it and go to heaven. But the problem is, if all mankind has ever known is sin, how in the world can one be just in the eyes of God, right? And so this is where we get into our new covenant, the new and better covenant, as the Bible calls it, which is called the covenant of grace. And so Jesus, he had to be born of a virgin. Why? Because he was born of a man. We speak of this in theology known as the hyperstatic union. This basically means that Jesus, he was both truly God and truly man. But have you ever wondered why Jesus had to be born in likeness of a man? For number one was the reason why he was born of a virgin was because he could not be born in the same corrupt nature that we have. Because of Adam being our head and basically neglecting to keep or fulfill the covenant works, he damned all of us. But Jesus, he came born the same way, not in the likeness of Adam in the sense that he was born in sin like all of us are, but he was born by the Holy Spirit, born with his same nature he's always had. He was holy, right? That's why he was born of a virgin, so that he would not have the same corrupt nature. But two, Jesus Christ, he was also born under the same covenant of works because there had to be someone to fulfill this covenant of works. And so think about this. Adam, had he obeyed the covenant of works, he would have brought blessings and life to all his people. But since he failed it, damnation and God's wrath has been upon um, all his people ever since then because all of them are born to sin. But Christ uh, I think Paul says, Romans 5, Adam was a type of him who was to come. So Adam was the first head, but now we have a new and better head. In the same way, we have the first covenant, the covenant of works, but now we have a new and better covenant, a covenant that is built upon grace. So no longer is it you do this and you'll be blessed and rewarded, but now it's built upon Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, you see then, the um, he says, you see then that until our Lord came into this world, it was a covenant of works towards him. Basically saying the same thing I just said, how Christ had to be born under this same covenant. Then he says, quote, he had certain works to perform upon condition of which certain blessings will be given to us. Our Lord has kept that covenant. He basically obeyed all 613 laws in the Bible. And he personally, he perfectly fulfilled them. His part in it has been fulfilled the, even to the last letter. There is no commandment which he has not honored. There is no sin in which we can say that Christ has sinned. Christ is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, right? And so Spurgeon then says, quote, There is no penalty of the broken law which he has not endured. He became a servant and obedient. Yes, Paul says obedient to death, even death on the cross. Then he says, quote, he has thus done what the first Adam could not accomplish, and he has retrieved what the first Adam forfeited by his transgression. And so Spurgeon then ends the quote by saying, he has established the covenant, and now it ceases to be a covenant of works, for the covenant of works are all done and fulfilled in Christ. And so now what remains in this new covenant, God, on his part, has solemnly pledged in himself to give uh, undeserving sinners favor because Christ has fulfilled the covenant of works. And so that same covenant that Adam couldn't keep, Christ was born under the same stipulation that kept, or that basically kept God's covenant perfect. And so now Christ is able to extend grace now because Christ has kept that covenant. And so we speak of that covenant. Um, let me read a passage in Jeremiah. And so one reason why I differ, let me read the confession because they're definitely much smarter than I am. <laughs> I know um, you guys definitely should be looking this stuff up. So you guys are going to be listening to everything I tell you. You definitely do the research you guys yourself. You have what is known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
And I'll talk about that in my next episode. And you have the Baptist Confession of Faith. To be specific, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And so both of these confessions are definitely identical in some areas, but they're very different. One of those areas is chapter 7 of God's covenant. So listen to this. Chapter 7 of God's covenant. It says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do not owe obedience to him as a creator, yet they can never be, have obtained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. Talking about Christ, of course. Which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. And in a passage they gave, um, passage they gave are Luke chapter 17, verse 10, Job 35, verse 7 and 8. Then section 2, it says, Moreover, man having been brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto the sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, who requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved and promise and give all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And all the passages we're given is Genesis 2, verse 17, Galatians 3, verse 10, Romans 3, verse 20, 21, Romans 8, verse 3, Mark chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, John chapter 3, verse 16, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27. Um, John 6, verse 44 and 45, and Psalms chapter 110, verse 3. Section 3, it then, it then ends, um, they say, this covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam in the promises of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by further steps until the full discovery was therefore completed in the New Testament. So basically, um, people who affirm to covenant theology, who are Presbyterian usually, or I guess you would say <laughs> they are Reformed still. I would consider myself to be Reformed Baptist, but then you also have people who just say they reform. What they mean by that is typically they are what is known as Presbyterians. They would say that they would agree on everything I taught about the covenant of works, but they would say the covenant of grace, in essence, has always been here. That passage in Genesis 3 that says that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. They were showing how the covenant of grace was there in the garden. But for the Baptist who affirms to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, we would say, no, the covenant of grace was not fully realized until Christ died on the cross. Because think about this. How could grace be shown to anybody unless somebody kept and fulfilled the covenant of works? If God just shows grace, and he does not punish the sin, it kind of contradicts God's character. So the reason why God was able to show grace, because it was foreshadowing what he was fixing to get ready to do on the cross. But the covenant of grace was not fully here yet. It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament several times, but it was fully realized at the death of Christ. And so the makers of my confession, that's what they're getting at. And so they said again in section three, of God's covenants, this covenant is revealed in the gospel first to, to all to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman and afterwards by further steps until the full discovery therefore was completed in the New Testament. And it was founded on that eternal covenant transaction has been between the father and the son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by grace of this covenant that all the prosperity of fallen Adam that ever were saved, did obtain life, and blessed. And rightly, man now being utterly capable, basically, I'm not going to call all that, because <laughs> it's long. Basically, what they're saying is now, no longer is it a covenant of works, but now we fall simply on grace alone in Christ. And so Christ freely gives his grace of unmerited favor to those who are now believers. And so the passages they give us are Genesis 3.15, Hebrews 1, yeah, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, Titus chapter 1 verse 2, Hebrews 11 verse 6 and 13, Romans chapter 4 verse 1 and 2, and we're given Acts chapter 4 and 12, and lastly, John 8, 56. And so, that was a lot. And so, so far we've covered uh, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And so, 
you guys will need me to show you what the covenant of grace is because everything that's taught in the New Testament is under a new and better covenant, right? And so that is what we speak of about the covenant of grace. So everything that's taught in the New Testament is referring to the covenant of grace. Let me see if I can find this passage in Hebrews. If I cannot, then I would just um, take us to the next covenant real quick. Let's see. It's in Hebrews chapter 6. I was trying to see what verse I wanted to talk about. Mm. I'll probably quote it at the end of the video. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember earlier I was going to Jeremiah. I'm going to show you guys a reason why, especially for those who are particular Baptists, Reformed Baptists, we would say that covenant of grace was foreshadowed in the Old Testament and then fulfilled at the death and very resurrection of Christ. And it has not always been here. And so listen to what Jeremiah says. Let me find this passage real quick. Okay, I found the passage and it's Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Listen to what God says in this beautiful passage talking about the covenant of grace. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Listen again. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with the fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was the husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And so... I said earlier that it was Hebrews 6, but listen, it's actually Hebrews 8. And so the person or the author who wrote Hebrews, more than likely probably Paul, because we'll get that later. <laughs> he takes this passage of scripture. That's why I love the New, New America Center Bible so much, because anything in the New Testament that's an Old Testament passage, it's highlighted in all capital letters. And not only that, it tells you what passage it's talking about. And so Paul... He takes Jeremiah 31 and places it in a sermon in Hebrews. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, quoting Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with the fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord, because he hates sin. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to them in their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13, it says, What he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to go ready to disappear and so what a beautiful uh explanation of the new and the old covenant again the old covenant that god was talking about in that passage he made with the people of israel after moses led the people out of the land of egypt that was an exodus and so we get to deuteronomy we have all these uh different um laws the people of god were supposed to obey again if you obey me you'd be blessed in the land but if you disobey me you'd be curses You'll have curses fall upon you and you will not be able to go into the land. Not only that, Adam was under that same covenant of works. And so Adam, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. But if you disobey me, you'll be cursed. In the same way today, if you want to be, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. There is no ifs or ands about it, about it, I meant to say. And so God, because he's holy, he requires perfect obedience. And that's why we have 
the covenant of grace because no longer is it based upon our works, but now it's based upon the new and better covenant where because somebody has now come into the world under the covenant of works, who was a human, but also both God has kept and fulfilled every single stipulation requirement of the covenant of works that Adam could not keep. Therefore, he is now our new head. And in this new and better covenant, in this covenant, our head, the second Adam, he extends and bestows upon um, all who are in Christ, unmerited favor and grace. The Bible talks about how you have been just justified in the sight of God the Father. We will speak of this known as justification by faith. And basically, this is what is known as a double imputation. And so in the gospel, the moment you got saved, Paul says, although Christ knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf, the sinner. And then in Christ, basically, is the righteousness of God. And so although Christ knew no sin, he became sin. The meaning is not that Christ became a sinner. The meaning is that we imputed or transferred and gave all our sins of Christ on the cross. Isaiah 53 says, it pleased Yahweh, God the Father, to crush his only son on the cross. Because in that moment, Christ bore the wrath of God upon himself by taking upon your sin. So imagine this. Imagine putting on a jacket. I'm pretty sure just imagine you guys' favorite jacket, right? Maybe you like me, like Polo, Nike, Adidas, whatever it is. Maybe like if your football team is Green Bay, you put on the Green Bay jacket. Hopefully, right? I'm just playing. <laughs> maybe we got some Laker, Laker uh, bandwagons after we won the chip this year, and maybe they put a Lakers jacket on. Ain't no telling, right? You know, you, you know, you know, you guys, you got the LeBron, LeBron, LeBron lovers. Wherever LeBron go, that's where people are gonna ride with. Anyway, imagine instead of putting on a jacket of clothes made of silk and cloth, whatever, whatever material jackets are made out of imagine putting on a jacket of righteousness not from your own merit or favor but because of what christ has done god's unmerited favor perfection and righteousness imagine putting on a coat of righteousness well you can't because you are a sinner but what's so beautiful a double imputation it says that christ he put on your sin of and basically put it on himself as though it was a jacket and his father killed him in your behalf because you were a sinner deserving of God's wrath. That's why when we say be born again and be saved, you are getting saved from the wrath of God. Again, not from the devil. You're not being saved from your trials and problems of the world. You're being saved from the wrath of God. Since God is holy, not if God is holy, since God is holy, he must therefore punish all sins that's why in the garden under the original covenant of works it was if you obey me you'll be blessed because god he rewards faithfulness and obedience but if you disobey god god has to punish sin because he's holy god cannot coexist with sin because his very essence and being is holiness everything is holy god has a holy love he has holy grace he has holy mercy Everything that you can say about God, put holy in front of it because God is transcended and set apart, even from all evil. And so if God were to just allow evil to exist in the world without punishing it, it would contradict his own character and God would no longer be just. And so you, the sinner, Christ, he imputes to you and gives you a jacket made of righteousness, not from your own works, but from his works. And once you put that on, Christ puts your jacket of sin on and his father crushes him. And so you have been justified and made right in the sight of God in this new covenant of work, this new covenant of grace, y'all. <laughs> in this new covenant of grace because of what Christ has done. Because Christ has kept and fulfilled the covenant of works, we are now justified in the sight of God based on his works in the covenant of works now inside the covenant of grace. And so now we're justified on Christ's works. And so I have a good friend. He always says Christianity is a works-based system, but it's not by our works. It's by Christ's works. And so I've also heard someone say, a Christian, he says, Christ, he fulfilled the covenant of works inside the covenant of grace to accomplish the third covenant, 
what is known as the covenant of redemption. Now, basically, lastly, we're going to close the covenant of redemption. Again, you guys know the covenant is an agreement between one or more parties. But in this covenant, this is the covenant that was not made between God and man. Like I told you guys, the covenant of works was between God and man, and no man has kept that covenant. And so in new covenant, Christ, he comes and fulfills the covenant of works and now is able to extend grace inside the covenant of grace by keeping and fulfilling the covenant of works. But this is all to accomplish what is known as the covenant of redemption. And so the covenant of redemption is basically basically an agreement or a promise that God made within himself that he will redeem and save a people before the foundation of the world. Before anybody was born, God says, I'm going to redeem and save a people for myself. And so the covenant, again, is made between the three parties of the Trinity to the elect to atone for and save a select group of individuals unto salvation and eternal life. And so scripture, it does not uh, explicitly say that basically like I told you guys how in the garden, we didn't have the, the kind of covenant on language that we see about the covenant works that we see in Deuteronomy 28. But we know we knew there was a covenant there because the same language was the same. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed. In the same way, the covenant of redemption, the language is used all over the Bible. And so in just a few places, we see um, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Let me go there real quick. Ephesians 1, 3-14. I'm not going to read all this, but just some of it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we will be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind attention of his will, to praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and his beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. And so that whole section of scripture is talking about what is known as the covenant of redemption. Again, the covenant of redemption is an agreement or a truce that God made within himself that he would redeem a people. And Paul is explaining the covenant of redemption in clear as day language in Ephesians chapter one. Not only that, you can go to Ephesians chapter three, verse 11. And uh, yeah, verse 11. Chapter, yeah, Ephesians chapter three, verse 11. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13. Second Timothy one, verse nine. James two, verse five. First Peter chapter one, verse two. And so Jesus he often referred, you guys remember in the Gospels, Jesus says, I'm, I must do the will of the Father. Well, that will of the Father was the will and agreement they all made before the foundation of the world that they were redeemed and save a people. So the whole time Jesus was here on earth, he was fulfilling the covenant of works. He was uh, giving up. So think about this. This is beautiful. When Jesus was here on earth, he accomplished three covenants he fulfilled the covenant works inside the covenant of grace by giving sinners unmerited favor and justifying them before god but not only that this is all to accomplish the covenant of redemption and so the whole time christ was here on earth he says i must carry out my father's business as charles Spurgeon would say i must be about my father's business jesus was about his father's business because they had already said and set in stone that they will redeem a people for a God. And so passages that we have there are John 5, 3, verse 40, and, uh, John 5, verse 3 and 43, John 6, 38 through 40, John 17, 4 through 12. And so the salvation of the elect was God's intention from the very beginning of creation. This cannot be doubted, guys. This is all throughout the Bible. And so the covenant of redemption, it basically just formalizes this eternal plan 
in the language of covenant. And so God works via covenant. God is a relational God. And so God is a God who works in via covenants. And so he speaks to us. Let me translate. Yeah, let me word that. God speaks to us via covenant. And those three covenants are the covenant of works that requires perfect obedience that you cannot keep. So do not leave this podcast saying to yourself, well, I need to just work on being a better person. Maybe I need to read my Bible more. Maybe I need to go to church more because you cannot fulfill the covenant of works because you're born damned and hellbound already on your way to hell. The Bible says he who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the only son of God. And so now we have a new and better covenant that is not built upon your works, what you do to be rewarded. But now because you can't keep the unfulfilled the covenant of works, God has made a new and better covenant that's built upon all the promises of God and it's so beautiful. And all you have to do is simply believe in Christ and you'll be justified in his, his, uh, his eyes. And no longer do you have to work for anything, but Christ has already done the works. And all you do is simply believe in Jesus Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 10, you will be saved. But again, this belief causes action. You don't just walk down the aisle, pray a prayer, and say, I'm a Christian and you're saved. No, belief causes action. I'm not preaching works-based salvation, but I am preaching lordship salvation. What I mean by that is if Jesus is not Lord, he's not Lord at all. And so, again, when you get saved, your life should be a reflection of the salvation you have. Works don't save you, but nobody can be saved without producing works because it's impossible. The entire New Testament tells us that once a person is in Christ, there should be a change. And so to you today, if you say you profess Christ, there should be a change in your life. How can you not remember when you were dead in sin, hellbound, under the wrath of God, and now that you've been saved, you have a hatred towards sin? The Bible says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn because they are poor in spirit. Apart from Christ, they recognize that there is nothing they can do to earn eternal life. They cannot keep the covenant of works. They are mourning because they can't keep this covenant of works. They are mourning over the sin they have. And the Bible says their reward in heaven will be great. Why? Because Christ has made a way to where they can be justified in his eyes by simply believing in him. So today, people, if you are not in Christ, the Bible says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I am the door. Why? Because you must enter through the door to be saved. There is no other name under heaven among which we must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other salvation. There is salvation in no one else under heaven except by Jesus Christ. Paul says, simply believe in Christ and you will be saved. Again, people, there is salvation in no one else. Drugs cannot save you. Your marriage cannot save you. Sex cannot save you. Pornography cannot save you. All the riches and the money, all the materialistic things in the world cannot save you. But Christ can save you. True rest is found in Christ. If you put your rest and satisfaction in anything else, it will disappoint you because you were made, in essence, to glorify God. The whole purpose of you existing is to glorify God. And so if you take that, and put it upon things instead of the creator, your life is meaningless. We, even right now, I'm sure that somebody listening, that your life seems like it's basically purposeless. Why? Because you are missing your purpose in life. I'm not preaching prosperity gospel. I'm preaching the God, basically the gospel of the Bible. Your purpose is to glorify God. How do you do that? You do that by simply trusting in the one in whom he sent to die for your sins. If you die here today without trusting in Christ, you will spend an eternity in hell. Not because God is bad, but because God is good. He is holy. He hates sin and a sinner because God is holy. He cannot allow sinners just to freely enter heaven. You must be perfect to get to heaven. In fact, the only people who are in heaven are people who are perfect, who never sin. Now, you may say that's crazy, but because the Bible says that, or it teaches what is known as justification by faith, once you place your faith in Christ, you are justified. No longer are you counted or viewed as a sinner. But now when you get to heaven, God says, well done, my faithful 
servant because you have trusted in his son and his son's works save you because Christ has fulfilled all three of these covenants. And so you may say, well, how can I trust a man like that? Because he is so glorious and wonderful to be trusted. He will never let you down. He says, I'll never leave you and forsake you. So today, Paul says, now is a day of salvation. There is salvation in no one else. So please place your faith and trust in the one true God, not in the things of this world. Don't praise the creation, but praise the creator who made the creation. Thank you, guys. And uh, so basically, uh, next episode, we'll be dealing with confessional. And so, so far, we've covered covenant theology, Calvinism. In the next two episodes, we will talk about um, confessional and the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And so, if you are in town, if you live in the United States, my church is hosting a five solas Reformation conference, October 31st, 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. You can look us up. You can look us up online and register today. Actually, I believe you just type in uh, Christ Redeemer Church, Pineville, Arkansas, and go to the website. You can register there. And so, definitely, please come down to hear this conference. It will definitely be enlightening to your soul, and um, definitely be encouraging to hear, especially reform. Even not, you, if you're not reform, you still can learn and grow in the Lord. And we also will have several different breakout sections and. Um, you know, beverages and stuff given there. But thank you guys for listening. Again, the purpose of theology is not to be puffed up with knowledge, but to trust in the Lord in whom the theology points to. And so all theology does not save. You can believe in a doctrine and still not be saved, but you must believe the doctrine to believe the person in which the doctrine points to, that is Jesus Christ. And so today I dropped a lot of dimes. My voice is already hurting because these dimes, right? And so my cash up name is P A Y M E one five one five four.